This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. The Holy Spirit continues to set hearts on fire with the love of Christ and inspire people to bring the good news to a world that is aching to hear it. Welcome to Blazing the Trail, a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. Now, here's your guide on this grand adventure, Catholic singer, songwriter, author, and speaker, Miriam Marston. And welcome back to Blazing the Trail here on Mater Day Radio. My name is Miriam Marston, and it's great to be with you once again as we take a closer look at the evangelizing mission of the Catholic Church. And this week, we head over to North Dakota to speak with Monsignor James Shea, who serves as the president of the University of Mary. Now, we covered a lot of ground during our conversation, and when it came time to do the usual post-production work, there was very little I wanted to edit or cut out because he had a number of important and wonderful insights. So to leave plenty of time for it, I'm going to go ahead and dive right into my interview with Monsignor Shea, who gives us a beautiful vision of what it means to live in an apostolic age of the church. I'm joined today by Monsignor James Shea, who is a priest of the Diocese of Bismarck and the president of the University of Mary. Monsignor Shea, it's wonderful to welcome you to Blazing the Trail. How are you today? I'm great. Good to be with you. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. And um, I am not terribly familiar with North Dakota, so I had to do a little bit of research before you and I spoke. But um, I, I was curious, did you grow up in the area of Bismarck? And uh, what did that kind of uh, those early years of the faith look like? Yes, I'm, I'm from near Bismarck, North Dakota, a little town called Hazleton, mm-hmm. which is a town of about 200 people. And I grew up on a farm a dairy and grain farm about two miles north of Hazleton. I'm the oldest of eight children. I came from a devout Catholic family, and and yeah, I'm, I grew up here. Wonderful. And then, uh, so you discerned your vocation in that area. Did you study for the for the priesthood in that diocese? So right out of high school, I went for two years to Jamestown College, which is a small liberal arts college here in North Dakota. Then I went out to Washington, D.C., to the Catholic University of America. So I joined seminary after my sophomore year in college. Mm -hmm. And I studied philosophy out in Washington, both an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in philosophy, before going to the North American College in Rome, uh, where I studied theology. I was ordained a priest in 2002 and came back uh, to the Diocese of Bismarck. I was a high school teacher and an assistant Mm -hmm. pastor in some large parishes here in Bismarck before I was sent out uh, to cowboy country to the very western edge of our diocese where I was the pastor of two small parishes and I taught at another Catholic high school out there in western North Dakota before I became president of the University of Mary. I was named president at the age of 33 in 2009 and for 10 years I was the youngest college president in America and so I've been at it now for 14 years. 13 <laughs> um, well, in the University of Mary, it's a it's a, just a beautiful name for a, for a school, isn't it? It's a beautiful name. We love the Blessed Mother so very much. Oftentimes, people get confused because there are universities of Saint Mary 
uh, in various places. There's one in Minnesota, there's one in, in California, but we're the University of Mary. We're the place for people who already know that she's a saint. Wow, beautiful. And as you as you reflect, Monsignor Shea, on the uh, the students who have graduated from the university, who are getting ready for their careers, their vocations, everything that awaits them in the world. Um, and we know that everyone's a little bit different, but what would you like each student to walk away with from that university experience? Well, I have to tell you, Miriam, that that's one of my favorite questions. And it's a, it's a question that almost no one ever asks. And so I'll answer it as fully as I can. You know, we're a university of about 4,000 students. And so we're not a small place. And we're very intentionally not sort of a Catholic bubble. We don't want to be a place. And there are great places uh, where you can go uh, to primarily to deepen your formation in the Catholic faith. We have formation here, of course, sacramental and intellectual and apostolic, but we're also a place with large numbers of the professions. We have the number one nursing program in America. I don't know if you know that, but two of the last three years, we've had the top ranked undergraduate nursing program in the United States. We have a school of engineering, a school of business, a school of education, and then of course a great big school of arts and sciences with the humanities and Catholic studies and all of those things. And so we have all kinds of people who come. For instance, we have a doctorate in physical therapy with a waiting list of about 300 to get into it. And so we an and NCAA division two athletics. And so there's just a lot happening here. And so I have to answer that question in a full sense. So let me give you three answers to it, okay? Please. Number one, I, I would like uh, for students who graduate here from here to say, you know what? I was raised in a Catholic family, and I didn't realize when I was growing up what a blessing that was. I had no idea. I took it for granted. I didn't know that being introduced to Jesus and his saving promises was such a spectacular gift. And then I went to the University of Mary, and I thought I knew everything I needed to. But I didn't actually. I didn't know how to share my faith. I might have known my faith, but I had no idea how to share it. And I thought that you could do it by stomping around and hitting people over the head. But instead, while I was at the University of Mary, I was so supported in the growth in my faith, and it was just spectacular for me. And uh, I became uh, more winsome, more joyful, more convincing more convicted, more confident, more loving. In every way I grew, my, my spirit, my mind, my heart just expanded while I was at the University of Mary. And in the midst of it, I got a, I got a heck of an education. And so now I'm out, I'm able to really be an exemplar of what the Second Vatican Council calls the vocation of sanctity of the laity. You know, and so I'm able to be that leaven in the midst of the world in a way that I would have never been able to be before. Or if I'm a priest or a religious, I'm able to share the gospel uh, in, in no matter what my vocation is. I'm able to share the gospel in this very winsome, joyful way. So that's one outcome. Another outcome, Miriam, uh, is the, the person who says, you know, when I came to the University of Mary, I went there to play baseball. I went there to play volleyball. I went there to study uh, the health sciences. I went there because they had a great education program and I wanted to be a teacher. But I was a nominal Lutheran or Methodist or a nominal Catholic or I didn't believe in anything. I was just a seeker. And while I was there, the way that everything was set up uh, was so wonderful. I never felt like a second class citizen while I was there. And indeed, 
I, I had this life-transforming experience, and I met Jesus Christ deeply. And now everything is different for me. I had this massive conversion when I was in college, and it just changed everything about who I am and how I see the world. And that's a second outcome. Um, you know, the person who comes here not knowing what they're seeking, they're just seeking something, meaning, purpose right. in their life. They, found, they find Christ. So that's a second outcome. Yeah. Then there's a third outcome, and I think that this is the trickiest, and I don't know that everybody everybody agrees with me, but I think a third outcome could be something like this. Um, I went to a Catholic college, um, and, uh, you know, they never apologized for being Catholic. They were clear in their identity. Uh, They knew what they were about. And, you know, Catholics, they're interesting people. They believe a lot of things. Like, I don't believe everything they believe, but they believe a lot of things. And everything is important for them. Like, they sweat the small stuff. Everything has meaning. Everything has purpose. Everything. I mean, it's not that they're overthinking things. It's as though their whole vision of the world is enchanted. They're very interesting people. And while I was there, again, I never felt like I was a second-class citizen. I always felt like I was part of the life there and that I had concerns as a human being that they had, too. And let me tell you something about them. They know how to run a place. They know how to put things together because they just have this human genius about them. And they know how to love each other. It's And they knew how to love me. And I felt loved while I was there. And I'll tell you, you know, um, now I'm in my profession. I'm so happy that I went to a place like that. And I can tell you, the things that you read about them in the paper or on the internet, they're not true. Catholics are amazing people and some of my best friends. And so if I can get a student to that by the age of 21, 22, 23, I feel like God has plenty of runway to do a whole lot more. But I, I just want to say that because that last portion is really important because we are a project of the new evangelization at the University of Mary. And we're not just here to serve those who are already convinced. We're, we're about the work of building the kingdom in a really creative way. Does that make sense, Miriam? It does. It does. And uh, what a beautiful vision, uh, Monsignor Shea, for your students. I mean, that's that's absolutely beautiful. I, I can, I'm thinking of the college I went to and it had Mary in it, but it was quite different. It was the college of William and Mary, um, yeah, right, uh, just right, decidedly right. not a Catholic school. Um, and, and I really had to sort of, um, find my own way, sort of stumble through those four years by the grace of God. I myself did experience, a, a conversion, but I, I think it was more in spite of the culture there and not really because of it. So I thank God for that. Um, but what a different experience it would have been had the leadership of the, of the institution been like, this is what my, my heart's desire for you all, even if it's not explicitly said like this, but in, in all the different ways that you lead that community. Yeah. yeah well, for me, it's a great honor. I, I can't imagine, um, a different life for myself than the one that I've been given. I'm so grateful to be a priest, and I'm so grateful that in the midst of my vocation to the priesthood, I've been given the opportunity to influence so many young lives. It's very, very, very humbling and uh, tremendously beautiful for me. I'm very grateful to be here at the University of Mary. What a gift. Well, for those who are uh, just tuning in, I'm speaking with Monsignor James Shea, who is a priest of the Diocese of Bismarck and president of the University of Mary. And as though you you weren't busy enough, you you are uh, 
I know active in speaking in other events and and uh, doing interviews such as these, for which I am very grateful. But there's an event coming up, Monsignor Shea, that you'll be speaking at. It's being put on by Evangelical Catholic. It's called Priest for an Apostolic Age. I pulled up the uh, the dis- the short description of the event which I thought was helpful. So it will provide priests with the opportunity to gather with others who share similar convictions on evangelization, learn how an outdated understanding of the parish could be holding them back and how to leverage their influence to activate a movement of missionary disciples. So you'll be, I think, a keynote speaker at this event. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. You know, the people over at Evangelical Catholic are really amazing because they're very engaged in the questions of the new evangelization in, in, in really wonderful ways. And I think it's very touching that they understand uh, that in the midst of all of this, priests also need renewal and that the renewal of priesthood and the, the apostolic zeal necessary to carry out uh, the work of priesthood in a new apostolic age is deeply important. You know, I think, Miriam, one of the reasons that they asked me is that back in 2020, a couple of years ago, the University of Mary published a very modest little book, an essay, which I think Archbishop Sample out there in your part of the world uh, has used quite a bit called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. And the premise of that book is that there are certain points in human history where you can draw a right line between everything that went before and everything that's coming after. And this takes a page actually from our Holy Father, Pope Francis, who uh, has quoted many times the Aparecida document of the Latin American bishops, which he had a part in writing when he was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, when he was Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Um, And the, the quote that he's repeated from that document so often is, we do not live in an age of change, but a change of age. It's a change of the ages. And what that means is that we're going from what what could be called a Christendom time, a time when sort of the sensibilities and instincts uh, and structures of the society and the culture are formed by the gospel of Jesus, are formed by Christianity, into a new apostolic age. Because over the, uh, over the course of the last 250, 300 years, the society or the civilization that we've been living in has been consciously but steadily ridding itself of its Christian basis. And so we find ourselves in a new apostolic age in the same way that in the first 300 years of Christianity, when the church was, was, was um, sort of in confrontation with the dominant Greco-Roman culture of that time, before the empire converted to Christianity, subsequent to the Edict of Milan and Constantine and all of that, uh, in the same way, we're living in uh, a new apostolic age. And the church has to operate in a different way in an apostolic time than it does in a Christendom time. Both times have their advantages and their disadvantages, but the church has to be super smart and strategic about how it brings the gospel in a Christendom time when people need to be woken up again to what they sort of subconsciously know, and in an apostolic time, especially a post-Christian apostolic time, which is a new reality in which people believe that they've heard the gospel, that it has nothing to do with them, and they need to be woken up so that they can hear the gospel again for the first time, if that phrase makes sense, to hear the gospel again for the first time. And so that's the work that we have to do in the world in which we are right now. And this this uh, Priests for an Apostolic Age conference down in Texas for priests who are looking for renewal in their lives, I think that's what the evangelical Catholic folks 
are trying to accomplish. And I really admire them for it. That's awesome. And have you sort of sensed that um, there's an even greater urgency at this time? Like there's, there's a reason why now we're going to have an event like this or a conference like this, or we're talking like this. What, what's in the air that's making this even more urgent yeah. than ever, Monsignor Shea? Well, you and I are talking, Miriam, uh, just a week following uh, the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. So Pope St. John XXIII opened the Second Vatican Council on October 11th, mm -hmm. uh, 1962, with an address called Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices, in which he laid out uh, some of the premises of the Second Vatican Council and what it would be about. And since that time, he and Pope St. Paul VI, the now blessed uh, John Paul I and St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI and Francis have all in their various ways been, been pointing to this question of a new apostolic age. So there's nothing revolutionary that this conference will treat of. There's no, nothing revolutionary in that small essay that Archbishop Sample has given out to all the priests of the Archdiocese of Portland. Mm -hmm. There's nothing revolutionary in it. It's just, and this is in direct answer to your question, it's just that I think people are seeing much more clearly the relevance of these questions. Because mm -hmm. even though the church in her wisdom for, for nearly 60 years now, or for over 60 years has been saying, everything's shifting, everything's changing. We need to present the gospel in a new way for a new age. Even though that's been a constant message and a constant refrain, I think people are just now, especially in this country, starting to sit up straight and realize, holy cow, that's true. And I think some of the things that are happening around us have to do with the increasing secularization of our culture, uh, which is much more apparent, even in places like North Dakota, than it used to be, you know. So, uh, you know, I think according to polls, I don't know if this is true, Miriam, you can maybe help me, but a place like Oregon, for instance, is one of the most secular places uh, in the country, according to the rates of church going and yeah. sort of public displays of faith and those kinds of things. Yeah. That would be very different from a place like North Dakota. You know, students come here from Oregon uh, to the campus of the University of Mary. They enroll here and they can't believe it. They, they say things like, this is like the Shire. You know what I mean? In, in J.R.R. Tolkien's novels, uh, this is sort of a protected place. But, but it's not. <laughs> it is, but it's not. We have social media here. We have the Internet. We have the news. We've got all of those things. And I think the winds are clearly blowing in a different direction now. You know, we see a lot of the uh, unrest that came in the wake of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we see woke ideology all around us. And as a result, people are really sitting up and saying, hey, some of this is actually pretty severely opposed to Christian thought, practice and morality. What are we going to do about it? And the answer is that we need to change our strategies, not that we need to change the teaching, not that we need to change the deposit of faith, not that we can or would want to change the truth, but the truth needs to be conveyed and preached in a different fashion now. Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask a similar question when uh, I inquired about the profile of a, a student who graduates from the University of Mary. What would you say are some of those distinguishing features of a priest for an apostolic age? What what's kind of, again knowing everyone's different, but yeah. what what are some of the the characteristics of such a priest? Yeah, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was out speaking to all the priests of the diocese of Brooklyn, New York, 
which again is a very different place from Oregon and a very different place from North Dakota. But these concerns are all over the place. And so I was talking to them about what it's like to be a priest in the time in which we find ourselves. And it's similar to what I think I'll be able to offer to all those priests who gather down in Texas uh, for this conference in January. Uh, and that's the, um, the, the times in which we find ourselves are peculiar for priests in that in a Christendom time, so before this new apostolic age dawned, in a Christian culture, in a culture which is informed by, in which people's imaginative vision and sort of the furniture of their minds and the institutions of the culture kind of speak to and interact with the Christian truth, a priest in a culture or a civilization like that has a particular role to play. Hmm. Priesthood, you know, Miriam, is always mysterious because it conforms to the mystery of Jesus Christ and his incarnation, his desire to be in the midst of humankind. And so priesthood is always mysterious, but the life of a priest makes sense in a Christendom time. In an apostolic time, nothing about the life of a priest makes sense at all. In other words, uh, we live in a new time in which all of the external supports uh, that would cause priests to be able to take refuge in the culture in any sense have all been stripped away. In other words, uh, you know, Jesus says, don't seek places of honor in marketplaces and synagogues. <laughs> well, there's much less, of a, much less of a temptation to do that when in fact there are no places of honor for priests in our culture anymore. And so priests all of a sudden live in a time in which the promises of simplicity of life and celibacy are just crazy, 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 and nobody would ever understand them. Why would a person uh, make the sacrifices necessary to live a priestly life uh, when the whole idea of, of an invisible world is just hocus-pocus and mumbo-jumbo, right. you know? And so as a result, in, in the age in which we live, Priests have to be deeper in their sense of brotherhood. They have to find their support from the church, from, from, from vibrant, vivid, holy lay people, and from other priests and religious, and can't look to the wider culture to form their imaginations, their minds, and their affections. Because if they do, they'll find that their priesthood is slowly but surely being sabotaged underneath the surface. Because the whole message of the secular culture in which we live in precludes and excludes as a matter of method the very possibility of a priestly vocation. And so priests need to recover that apostolic zeal uh, and be confident in the gospel because there's nothing else to be confident in. We can't look to the structures of the church and for honor from our culture to provide us with the meaning of our lives. We never should have been able to do that, but now we simply aren't able to do it as a matter of the, the cultural situation we find ourselves in. Mm, wow. So really recapturing that apostolic zeal, that brotherhood. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's so important. Um, Monsignor Shea, we are coming up to the end of our time together, just a, a few moments left, but I, I often ask my guests, could you just leave us with a hope, um, with a word of hope and encouragement for our listeners? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, gosh, so I have a whole lot of hope. And indeed, this question, the, the book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission that the University of Mary published in 2020, one of the reasons I think it's it's hit such a chord is it fundamentally, it, 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 it offers a stiff and a stern diagnosis 
of the situation we find ourselves in, but it also is deeply, deeply hopeful. And I would hope uh, that we can find hope in the midst of, of, of these difficult moments, especially by noting that God is not anxious. We might be anxious. We might be concerned. We might be thinking, oh my goodness, everything is falling apart. Uh, what are we going to do next? God doesn't experience that at all. And indeed, when people sometimes ask me, Miriam, do you think the church is going to survive? Like, can the Catholic Church really survive the times in which we live? You know, it seems like the news gets worse and worse and worse. And look at the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, those who don't have any religious affiliation. And look at the, the shortage of vocations. And look at the numbers in, in baptisms and marriages, how dismally low they are and all of that. And I say, holy cow, uh, pull, let's pull ourselves together and realize that the church won't it's not just a question of whether the church will survive. The church is the only thing that will survive. This fallen world will not survive. It's going to turn <laughs> to dust and ashes sooner than we know it. The church is very secure. The majority of members of the church are already in heaven with God. The Blessed Mother, the apostles who still govern the church, the saints and angels who are all cheering for us. We're just the smallest and the least impressive part of the church here on earth. But they're cheering for us. We have all of the resources of their protection, their strength, their love with which to love and to work for the kingdom here and now with. And so I think that we're living in a tremendously, seizingly exciting time. And when we wash up on that other shore, when we finally go to our everlasting reward, people will run up to us and say, tell us stories of that epic time in the world in which you were given the great grace to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Those are the times in which we're living. And so I think that we should be very hopeful, not sort of a kind of empty optimism, but a deep Christian hope, which is founded in everlasting promises because the giver of those promises is able to keep his word, and that's God. So let's put all our trust and hope in God, and let's just do the best we can in the midst of, uh, of what we've got. Here, I'll, I'll leave you then with not a, a, a quote from a great saint, but one of our presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, who came out here as a young man to the badlands of North Dakota, and, uh, and he said once that he never would have been president had he not been in North Dakota, because he came here to recover from a broken heart as a young man. Anyway, once he said, do what you can where you are with what you have. Do what you can where you are with what you have. That's all any of us can do. And in the meantime, God supplies for all the rest. So that's my word of hope, Miriam, at the end of our time together. That's a marvelous uh, word of hope to land on Monsignor Shea. I'm very grateful for your time today. I just ask that God continue to bless you, uh, your uh, your priesthood, and and your community, all the students, faculty, and staff at the University of Mary. God bless you. God bless you too, Miriam. God bless you. That last word of encouragement from Monsignor Shea gave me a renewed sense of confidence to just do what I can, where I am, and with what I have, trusting that God will do the rest. And I hope that that gives you some inspiration this week as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Miriam Marston, and I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail a weekly show dedicated to the church's mission of evangelization. 
For more information on Miriam Marston and her work, plus an archive of our past shows, visit us online at matradayradio.com or download the Hail Mary Media app. Blazing the Trail is produced at the studios of Matraday Radio in Portland, Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can support this vital mission of evangelization through materdayradio.com or the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for helping us lead souls to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary.